Hi, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week on the podcast, I'm going to give you the audio from the closing plenary at CNU 21. I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to participate in that plenary along with Mark Gorton. And uh, I've had a lot of you ask for the audio, a lot of you uh, who either weren't able to make CNU or had to take off a little bit early and weren't able to catch the end. Uh, I was fortunate that I did get a pretty good recording of it. And so we're going to release that this week as the podcast. And simultaneously, I'm putting together a YouTube video uh, that will have not only the audio, but the slides that accompany it. So if you're interested in that, you can get that straight off our website at strongtowns.org. Uh, click on podcast. It'll be there. Or you can grab it off of our YouTube channel. Uh, just search for Strong Towns. Thanks, everybody. And keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Our um, plenary speakers are Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, who is a uh, civil engineer and someone who has uh, worked for many years in, with uh, local infrastructure and inviting uh, people to do the wrong thing early in his career. And later on, as he gained more knowledge and insight, he gave people good advice, and that's what he does now for a living. Uh, as a former local official, uh, I would have appreciated having that kind of advice uh, when I was in office as mayor of the, Mil of the city of Milwaukee. Um, instead, you tended to get vendors like the Portland cement people or the asphalt people or whatever. They, were all, they would all show up at various times demanding that tax money be taken out of the city treasurer and deposited uh, deposited in their uh, account. Uh, so you get a lot of special interests instead of a, a really good advice. So what Chuck has done is answered the question uh, about what infrastructure adds value to cities and towns and other units of government. And, and that's really important because that's not usually part of the equation. If you look at uh, the uh, principles that are pushed by uh, state DOTs and local governments often listen to those uh, principles. Uh, it's all about increasing capacity, fighting congestion, uh, increasing the speed of travel, uh, providing more space for automobiles. And so when my good friend, uh, the former mayor of Philadelphia and former governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell, is on television repeatedly saying, we need infrastructure. America's falling apart. We need infrastructure. And it, it always, I, I want to scream into the television set, Ed, it's not just any infrastructure. It's infrastructure that adds value to communities. That's what matters. And that's why I was really excited to have Chuck uh, be a speaker to CNU 21. Uh, he he uh, goes around the country 
answering these tough questions and giving really great advice to local governments. And so it's my pleasure to introduce to you Chuck Marone. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, as someone who uh, for years in his professional career was looking for answers uh, and kept winding up with the new urbanism but denying uh, I was a new urbanist, uh, to be here amongst some of my best friends uh, means a lot. So thank you very, very much. I am a proud new urbanist, so thank you. Um, in my professional career, and, and all of you who have worked with cities in the trenches getting projects done, understand that there's really three ways that we function, uh, functionally uh, finance projects. The first is by seeking some type of transfer payment. This is the idea that we go to the state or federal government, look for some type of grant, some type of low interest loan. The second is through DOT spending, the idea that we get the DOT to invest in some type of project in our community, whether it's a, a highway, a rail line, a strode, whatever it is, uh, we get the DOT to come in. Uh, the third is debt. Uh, certainly public sector debt is an issue, but even bigger than that is private sector debt, the ability of the private sector to leverage funds uh, during construction to roll those over then into mortgages and commercial real estate loans. As a community, we seek out these investments because they create growth and that growth increases our tax revenue. If you look at this as a very simple equation, this is kind of city administration 101. Uh, there are some really powerful incentives to always look at these transactions in positive ways. When we get a transfer payment, when the DOT comes in and makes an investment, or when the private sector steps up and makes some type of leveraged uh, backed investment in our community, as cities we generally pay very little for that. Uh, there might be a little local match, there might be a little bit of staff time or some upgrade costs, but generally we pay very little. However, our tax base grows and that new tax revenue is a significant uh, addition to our overall revenue stream. The catch is that we agree to take on the long-term liability of maintaining all of this stuff forever. So in a sense, we trade a near-term benefit for kind of what winds up to be an unspecified long-term liability. Now, we spent a lot of time at Strong Towns uh, analyzing our development pattern. And I'm just going to give you two examples tonight. If you want more, there's a lot more on our website. Uh, but we've, what we've done is kind of broken down into its constituent parts uh, different aspects of our, our development pattern. This is a, uh, your standard kind of suburban subdivision. This was built in the early 1980s. Uh, the road was paved at that time. Uh, now it had completely fallen apart and needed to be fixed. Uh, you can see this is a closed-loop system. Uh, the only people utilizing this specific road are the people that live within this development. There's no commercial traffic. There's no upsizing for through traffic or anything like that. The cost to fix that road was $354,000. We asked the question, based on the amount of taxes the city's collecting from within this development, how long is it going to take them to raise uh, $354,000? The answer is 79 years. Now, the road's not going to last anywhere near 79 years. So we asked the question, if the city were going to raise enough tax revenue from the people who utilize this road in order to be able to fix the road the next time it fell apart, what would that mean? It would mean an immediate 46% increase in taxes across the board with annual increases of 3% over inflation every year for the next 25 years with every penny of that revenue going just for road maintenance. This is uh, your kind of standard business park. Uh, this is one with the wide industrial roads, all the utilities, the curb and gutter, uh, you know, the, the, the thick 
industrial size uh, road section. Uh, this city uh, built this one in the mid-1990s. It's completely built out. They thought this is so successful they want to repeat it on property they own just adjacent to it. They want to literally build the same exact thing. So we said if we could build the same exact thing and get the same exact return, would this be a good investment? In today's dollars, it would be $2.1 million to build this. Uh, we can step back and measure the tax base. There's $6.6 .6 million of private sector investment in this tax base. Now, before we go on, we should pause here and point out that of the lots in this park, four of them are a church. Churches are very important, but the church does not pay any taxes. Two of them are a school bus maintenance facility. Again, schools are very important, but the school district's not paying any taxes. Uh, one of them is a county maintenance garage. One of them is a city maintenance garage. Of the remaining lots, the ones that are theoretically private sector, every single one of them either received their lot for a dollar and or were given a long-term tax subsidy in order to attract that business to the park. For the sake of our analysis, we assumed that the entire park would build out within 12 months. They would all be private sector taxpayers. None of them would be subsidized. And every penny of new revenue would go just to retiring the debt. If that were the case, it would take almost 30 years, 29, year, 29 years, for this project to break even. That's 29 years where everybody else's taxes in the community would need to go up to pay to plow the streets, mow the ditches, provide fire protection, police protection, and every other service that would be needed. This is what this looks like from a cash flow standpoint. Let's pretend that a developer comes to town and says, I would like to build a new development. Uh, I'm willing to pay all the costs. Uh, I'm not asking for any variances. I'll go out and build exactly what your ordinance says. Uh, and when I'm done building it, uh, I will donate the infrastructure to you, the city, to maintain. Almost every city in this country would jump and say, yeah, that's a, that's a great deal. We spend nothing. Uh, we get all of this new tax base. Uh, but let's say that city decided, you know, we're going to try to be prudent. We're going to take the portion of that new tax revenue that would normally go towards maintaining all this infrastructure, and we're going to set that aside. And every year when the new revenue comes in, we'll add to what we had previously set aside. So every year it will continue to grow. And then when we get to the end, when we actually have to go out and fix something, we'll just take that pot of money and go do it. This is what would happen. In the early years, you would have a little bit of money. You would add to that and add to that and add to that over time. And you can see after two decades that you've built up quite a bit of wealth. The problem is, in this example, it's 25 years. When you actually have to go out then and fix something, what you find is that the cumulative amount of revenue that you brought in over the life of that development is not enough. And your cash flow goes far into the red. Now, cities are not one development. Cities are many developments. Uh, let's pretend that our developer comes back uh, after two years and said, this project was so good for me. Uh, it was good for you, the city. I would like to do it again. And two years later, it does it again and again and again. In other words, this is a scenario where we have nice, steady, ongoing growth. The exact kind of thing that our cities love to have. Uh, what you see is that your tax revenue, the receipts you have coming in, kind of starts to accelerate upwards. As the new developments come online and you're adding more and more and more growth, you feel richer and richer and richer. Uh, this is what we call the illusion of prosperity. Because as we all kind of intuitively understand, if you lose money on every transaction, you don't ultimately make it up in volume. You know, when you go in the red, ultimately in every transaction you do, the further you go out into the event horizon, the more downward pressure there is on your budget. Now, sometimes people look at this and say, well, Chuck, we've been doing this suburban-style development for years. Uh, you know, according to what you're showing us here, we should have gone broke a long time ago. Uh, how come we haven't? Um, and the answer is that we have, but we've dealt with it in this way. 
Uh, this is a graph of debt. I think we're all familiar to one degree or another with the narrative about our public debt. Our public debt is enormous, uh, trillions of dollars. Uh, it's beyond a kind of our ability to fathom how big the public sector debt is. In fact, when I was a kid, uh, we had the weekly reader. You guys had the weekly reader? Uh, I remember when I was a kid, they had the weekly reader and had a little breakout. Uh, and it said, if you took the national debt and converted it to dollar bills and stacked them on top of each other, it would go to the moon and back 23 times. You know, as if replacing one abstract concept with another abstract concept <laughs> would make things perfectly clear for a fourth grader, right? <laughs> so we all understand that the national debt is this like huge number, right? The bottom line, the blue one, is our national debt. The black one's our GDP. The green one, the one that soars up into the stratosphere, that's our private sector debt. That's debt that you and I have. That's home mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, student loans, margin interest accounts. That's private sector debt. The way we funded the first life cycle of this great suburban experiment is by taking our savings and reinvesting that illusion of prosperity that we felt with the early construction. The way we sustained it when that wasn't enough to keep things going is by converting from an economy based on growth through savings and investment to an economy based on growth through debt accumulation. And you can see as we cross over into the third life cycle, the ability to finance this style of growth through debt accumulation actually became predatory. We actually al allowed people or induced people who could not afford homes to buy homes, people who could afford small homes to buy large homes, people who could afford like, you know, large homes to buy multiple extravagantly large homes. Our capacity to continue this financial experiment uh, by accumulating more and more debt in the private sector is just not there. Obviously, there's some huge implications. Uh, the mechanisms of growth that we become accustomed to are waning. Uh, literally, the federal and state governments do not have the capacity to invest uh, to the degree that is needed to induce growth at the local level. The DOTs are all functionally broke. Uh, and, I mean, we're talking 10 cents to 25 cents on the dollar of what is needed of revenue to meet their long-term obligations. And, of course, the private sector is maxed out on their capacity to take on additional debt. This means that local governments are going to be forced to absorb the costs of their current development pattern. If we want that road fixed, we're going to have to pay for it. If we want that pipe repaired, that's going to come from us. If we want that new public facility, we're going to have to find a way to bring our money together to build it. This can't be done in the current pattern of development without large tax increases and or large cuts in services. Now, I wasn't invited up here to tell you what you already know, right? We all know uh, the debate that's going on at every level of government, right? How big is the tax increase going to be and who's going to pay for it? How deep is the service cut going to be and where is it going to be felt? It is critical as new urbanists that we see the third variable in that sentence. The third variable being the current pattern of development. As long as we continue to build places that are functionally insolvent, as long as we continue to build in a manner that costs us more over the long term than it generates in wealth, there is no way our cities can avoid going bankrupt. There literally is no amount of tax increase and no amount of service cut that can overcome that fundamental insolvency. We have to change the way we are building our cities. So let me start with this, because this is where I always like to go back to. This is my hometown. I come from the city of Brainerd, Minnesota. How many of you have ever been to Brainerd? Anybody? It's so nice to have people here. You have, dude. <laughs> 
So Brainerd, Minnesota today is about two and a half hours north of Minneapolis-St. Paul. So in this period of time, this was early 1900s, this was literally the middle of nowhere. I mean, you're talking multiple days' journey from anything that you would call civilization. Yet, look at this place. I mean, this, this is pretty nice, isn't it? I mean, you look at the buildings, you look at the layout, you, you look at the spacing. You know, this is a really fantastic place. Let me ask you some questions about this place. How thick was their zoning code? How many comprehensive plans did they have? How many boards and commissions did you have to go to to get permission to build something here? How much tax subsidy did they give out? These people didn't even have 30-year mortgages, yet look at the place that they built. It's fantastic. And it was financially resilient. And you know how we know that? Because if it wasn't, it would have gone away. How did they know how to do that? It's really, really simple. They just looked around at what they knew worked, and they copied that. This pattern of development is the culmination of thousands of years of human experimentation in building places. The trial and error knowledge that was gained by our ancestors over doing it time and time again. And like many, many little busy bees, this was a cultural knowledge. This did not require the, you know, the, the, the grand experts to come in. This was something that everybody knew. Everybody knew how to build great places. If you look at what we have done uh, under the guise of all the new theories and all the new ideas about how we build places and finance them, uh, this is what this street has become today, the exact same street. Yeah, I always get that, the moan, like, oh, you're telling me. Uh, you know, the, it's a wasteland of parking and vacant buildings. If you want in one slide why we are broke as a country, right there. There is a half million dollars of public infrastructure in that street. And look at the public's return on investment. Every, every city has blocks and blocks, miles and miles of that kind of thing. That Every city is going to go broke if we continue to build places like that. So I'm here with all humility, but I, I was asked to do the closing plenary, and I felt like I'd like to lay out some things that I think we as new urbanists could do uh, a little bit more proactively, a little bit better in carrying our message further. Uh, then the first one is that, do I good, because you're freaking me out. <laughs> I saw what you did to Andres, and I didn't want to have to fight you. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to have to turn them on you. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, the first thing we need to do is we need to relentlessly prove ourselves uh, as the high return investment. Uh, we walk in today to meetings with great arguments about aesthetics, great arguments about walkability and livability, but we're missing like the bazooka in our argument. We're missing like the big thing, and that is that we are for the public, the taxpayer, the high return investment. And let me show you what I mean. These are two blocks in my hometown. They're uh, identical in every way. They're the same size, they're the same configuration. They abut the same highway, the same neighborhood. They're a block apart. The only thing different about them is the style of development. The one on the left we've called old and blighted. It looks old and blighted. Uh, this was built in the, you know, just before the depression. Uh, the highway went through right after World War II, and this thing has just stagnated for 60-plus years, right? So you have, you know, the bail bonds, the pawn shop, uh, the haircut place where you can still get the flat top. 
This is the, just the, you know, the lowest rent commercial block in town. The city's plans call for this block specifically to ultimately be torn down and rebuilt in the style of shiny and new. This was done a few years ago. A block very similar to the old and blighted was torn down and replaced with this taco joint, the drive-thru. Now, everybody was tickled pink about this transaction, right? We got rid of blight, first of all. Second of all, it met all the zoning codes, the sign ordinance, the parking regulations, all that. The engineer was thrilled because we got the entrances and the parking off the street and the cars can go through quickly now. Uh, even the, uh, the environmentalists were happy because they, were, they talked them into putting uh, natural plantings in the stormwater areas on the project, right? What nobody looked at was the, the money. That old and blighted block, that run-down, decrepit uh, block, has a total valuation of $1.1 million. That, that shiny and new block with the cities trying to get all up and down that corridor uh, has a total valuation of only $800,000 the same size area, the same characteristics, the same amount of public infrastructure and public services that we have to provide to that area, yet a tax base that's 42% less. Understand what you're looking at. In that old and blighted block, you are looking at literally the worst of the worst of the worst of the historic traditional development pattern. It would be hard to make that block any worse. Yet, it outcompetes by a, by a large margin the, the best of the shiny and new, right? And we all know the trajectory of the taco joint, don't we? You know, in 20 years, it will be a, you know, there'll be a new taco joint on the edge of town, and there'll be a used car lot there. And then 10 years after that, it will be boarded up, and they'll be selling meth out the back. And we'll be looking for a tax subsidy to tear it down and build something new again, right? The traditional development pattern has huge upside and very limited downside. The auto-oriented suburban experiment pattern has very limited upside, but is financially very, very fragile and has a downside that can literally go below zero. We've not only done these kind of things in our towns, but if you look on the edge of town, you see the same type of transactions. This is the Mills Fleet Farm Complex. This is, again, in my hometown. Uh, this is the most valuable piece of property out on the edge of town. Uh, for those of you that don't know Mills Fleet Farm, it's a Midwestern big box conglomerate. Uh, you can think um, tires, cow food, lumber, guns, camouflage lingerie. <laughs> and this is so wildly successful that they doubled the store a few years ago. Uh, they put in a car dealership and a, um, a, uh, a gas station you see there. Uh, we looked at this lot. It's, thir it's 13 acres. It has a total value of $0.6 million per acre. So we took that same size, 13 acres. And understand, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars inducing development like this out on the edge, running sewer and water and highways and, you know, signalized intersections and all this stuff. But we took that same size, 13 acres, and we overlaid it in Brainerd's traditional downtown. Now, maybe you saw the movie Fargo. Uh, at the beginning, they're in the Blue Ox Bar, which is depicted in downtown Brainerd. It's kind of a nasty scene, a nasty Downtown Brainerd is not a wonderful place, right? It's pretty down on its luck. In fact, the only development, I can't point it out here now, but basically my whole life, the only real investments there have been when buildings have burned down, we've converted them into parking lots. So, you know, there's been really no investment in my whole life. Yet, if you look, the same size, the same area, just a different configuration, has a total value of $1.1 million per acre. It's 78% more valuable. Now, let's ask ourselves something. 
If, the, if our cities are all going broke, if we need our places to become financially more productive, there's some brilliant people working on how to make that happen in that place on the left. And I've seen the plans, and they're brilliant, and they're, they're beautiful to look at. But look at that place on the right. Look at that, that 13 acres in downtown. Don't we kind of all intuitively know how to make that just incrementally better? I mean, sweep the sidewalks, pick up the trash, paint the storefront, convert some of those parking lots to buildings. This is not hard stuff. We make it too complicated sometimes. And really, we need to see that new urbanism, our traditional pattern of development, is the money maker. The second thing I think we need to do uh, is we need to have an emphasis on the incremental approach. We need to champion the incremental. Uh, Build it and they will come is a brilliant plot for a movie, right? You've got baseball, cornfields, Iowa, it's like everything, right? It is a terrible development strategy. (laughs) Yet, in kind of our desperation in this kind of advanced stage of the suburban experiment, build it and they will come has been the default operating model for our cities. We are literally the dumb money in every development, going out, throwing money all over the place, trying to make things happen. This is not how our ancestors built. And when I say ancestors, I'm not talking about just North America. I'm talking about around the world. This is not the way we built civilizations. The way we built it was incremental. This is, again, my hometown. This is in 1870. This is the very first street built. And you can see, you know, you've got basically some planed, uh, you know, logs that they threw up some little shacks. You're about 500 feet from the river, a couple hundred feet from the railroad tracks. There's some windows and some iron that were brought in, but not a real huge investment. You've got a billiard hall, a restaurant. I'm sure there was a brothel up the street somewhere. You know, you had a little bit of everything that you would need in a, in a range town for a bunch of lumberjacks. There were thousands of these built around the country, and a lot of them failed. And when they failed, we didn't have to pump a trillion dollars into Wall Street to keep the economy going and keep groceries in our stores, you know? What happened? They just plucked the windows out and moved on to the next successful town. But this town did succeed, and 30 years later, this street is the exact same street that I showed you earlier. Incremental, slow approach over many, many, many years over a broad scale took that little set of shacks, and all of a sudden they're two- and three-story wood structures. Forty years later, this exact same street now was turned into something like this. The wood front buildings became granite and rock facades. The way we got wealthy as a country was by building incrementally over time. Now, I'm I'm a big fan of what's going on here in Salt Lake City, but I think it's important to to understand that build it and they will come uh, is a philosophy that is not good, whether we're talking about highways and strodes and and horizontal development. We also have to apply the same rigor uh, to our other projects. This is in Minnesota, the Big Lake uh, North Star Corridor rail stop, literally built in a cornfield out on the edge of town. Why? Because we were going to induce development. It was great. We had lots of room for development. Never mind that there was a town with an old railroad stop that we just went by. I love the light rail line here, and there's been a lot of love showered on Salt Lake City at this conference about it. Uh, I don't understand the finances and the economics of having a rail stop at a Wendy's. Uh, I don't care if you like to play dice or if you like to play cards. It's still gambling. 
And we need to be rigorous on ourselves. The build it and they will come mentality has got to go. And we have to focus on building incrementally and putting our investments into supporting productive patterns of development, not inducing them. Uh, the last thing then is that we need to advocate for an end to top-down solutions and instead embrace local problem solving. And we got a little bit of this from Andre Stwani earlier this week. I wish he would do an, another three-hour plenary just about that topic, subsidiarity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not three and a half. <laughs> um, innovation that happens from the top down tends to be orderly but dumb, while innovation that happens from the bottom up tends to be chaotic but smart. And I think in the, in the age of the web, we all kind of understand this intuitively, right? We see how, you know, one central server, uh, you know, even though it might be great and have all kinds of capacity, it does, has not near the strength and robustness uh, of a million little PCs on people's desks. Yet we look at this and we say, yes, Chuck, I'm, I'm ready today to stand up and replace dumb with smart. But understand that replacing dumb with smart also comes with replacing orderly with chaotic. We kind of rebel against that notion. Uh, the chicken problem that has been described many, many times, the idea that, you know, why are we deciding who can have chickens on a regional level? Uh, the reason is because we want order. We're, we're afraid of chaos. If two neighbors don't get along and they've got to figure out if they can have chickens, all of a sudden that becomes, you know, the town council's problem. Then it becomes the regional council's problem. And then you've got this, you know, dumb regional policy that everybody must follow. As new urbanists, we have to resist that trend. Um, let me show you what orderly but dumb and chaotic but smart actually looks like. This is Memphis, Tennessee. And I have a really soft spot for Memphis because Memphis is, first of all, a great city. And it's a city that is working hard to become uh, a really great city. And I just love the place. But the thing that makes me the saddest about Memphis is that Memphis has done everything that they were told to do. They did everything the professionals told them would bring them wealth and prosperity. They built the Beltway. They ran all the highways through the neighborhoods. They ran the water and sewer out to the edge of town. They did the whole urban renewal where they tore down whole blocks and rebuilt these monstrosities. When that didn't work, they subsidized businesses to move there. They subsidized businesses to stay there. They went and built a second beltway out in the middle of the etherland. They did everything that the professionals told them would bring them wealth and prosperity. Yet it has remained elusive. You're looking there at the stadium that they built for the basketball team. They wound up getting a basketball team, but they had to build another stadium for them. And this is now going to become a Bass Pro Shop. Okay? Yeah, I'm not joking you. I mean, imagine like, you know, the wood facade on the drive-in of the Bass Pro Shop pyramid. Um, <laughs> There's a bizarre, bizarre thing. This is what orderly but dumb gets you. Let me show you chaotic but smart. This is Broad Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. And literally with a tiny bit of intervention and some people who went out with some buckets of paint and said, we're going to do something here in this neighborhood to, 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 to make it work because we're being ignored. Uh, we, we're not getting the investments that we need. We're going to go get some paint and we're going to paint some bike lanes. We're going to paint some crosswalks. We're going to paint some parking lanes. And we're going to take ownership of our place and try to make it happen. Before this project started, over half these storefronts were empty. They're now full. 25 new businesses, dozens of new employees, tens of millions of dollars literally of new investment because of this modest, modest little intervention. Now I can tell you what my city would do. 
my city loves order. And the chaos of this would drive them crazy. They would go out and they would say, okay, that line's not straight. Uh, that's not up to code. Uh, that's not the right shade of green. We're going to get a lawsuit filed against us. We've got to do something here. And they would be out on Monday morning with the pressure washer getting rid of all of that. But Memphis is trying to embrace the chaotic but smart approach. And Memphis is saying, you know what? Where are other neighborhoods that have similar characteristics where an intervention like this might work? Is there a way we can take this intervention and, first of all, make it permanent? I mean, let's go out and power wash this and bring in some good 3M paint that'll be there for the next 15 years and put it in so that we don't lose what has just happened. Is there a way we can extend it, maybe a block in each direction? Would that add to... Uh, you know, what's gone on without a lot of extra cost. Is there some other project we're working on, like a bike trail uh, that was scheduled to go in two blocks away that we can now reroute through this neighborhood? Because we see this is a productive place now. You've got things going on. Let's support that as we go ahead. This is a chaotic but smart approach. A lot of these will fail. And a lot of these will be messy. But if we want our places to be successful, we've got to embrace that. And we have to be, with the new urbanism, the champions of that chaotic but smart. So we need to prove, we need to walk in the door confident that we're the high return investment. And we need to prove that to people every time, every time we walk in the door. We need to champion the incremental approach. And we need to be all about the bottom up chaotic but smart innovation. Um, this has been an amazing honor. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll see you guys all in Buffalo. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. Tell me, what is the worst case scenario? So we have so many economists coming on our air and saying, oh, this is a bubble and it's going to burst and this is going to be a real issue for the economy. Some say it could even cause a recession at some point. What is the worst case scenario if, in fact, we were to see prices come down substantially across the country? Well, I, I guess I don't buy your premise. It's a pretty unlikely possibility. We've never had a decline in house prices on a nationwide, nationwide basis. So what I think is more likely is that the house prices will slow, maybe stabilize, 
might slow consumption spending a bit. I don't think it's going to drive the economy too far from its full employment path, though. So would you agree with Alan Greenspan's comments recently that we've got some areas of the country that are seeing froth? Not necessarily a national situation, but certainly froth in some areas. You, you can see some types of air, uh, some types of speculation, investors uh, turning over condos quickly. So those sorts of things you see in some local areas. Um, I'm hopeful that, and I'm confident, in fact, that the uh, bank regulators will will pay close attention to the kinds of loans that are being made, making sure that underwriting is done right. Um, but I, I do think that this is mostly a localized problem and not something that's going to affect the national economy.